In this episode, Ken Goldman, president of Hellspire and former CFO of both Yahoo and Siebel, talks about how to deal with activist investors, the importance of acting as consigliere to the CEO, and why CFOs are in such short supply today. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's CFOs. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, it's, it's welcome to be here. I enjoy getting on these calls. It's, it reminds me of the old radio. I have a face for radio and I probably have a face for podcasting where you don't have to see me. <laughs> and you, you and I both then. Um, like looking at your your background and, and seeing like some of the things that you've spoken about uh, historically, a big part of what, what you've spoken about is that almost advocating that the CFO, like working in corporate finance or finance within a within a company, uh, is a great place to be, and that the this a CFO is a great role uh, to be in. And you you speak about finance making a difference. Can you speak a little bit about? your view on that and why you do have such passion behind the, the idea that the C, the, a CFO and that role of a CFO is a great one to have? Well, you know, I had that perspective when I started because I wasn't a CPA or accountant by training. I had come through an engineering background and an MBA background, and I liked technology. And, and my original thesis was to combine a technology-focused company with a financial direction by me. And that led me to go from uh, growing up in the East Coast to West Coast, where I felt even back in the 70s, I know I'm aging myself, would be where the technology area would sprout. The other thing I felt at the time, I looked at supply demand, I said, there's all these great universities in Northeast and these lot less, fewer technology companies, less universities in the West Coast and all these new great technology companies. So, you know, you can't do a career unless you have a focus. And my focus was to become a CFO, and I wanted to get a certain amount of training to do that. And I would just say there's a few things you need to, to really think about. And, and so my first job was really focused at Fairchild on accounting and sort of transactional areas of mm -hmm. FP&A. When I went to Memorex, a company most of you probably haven't heard of, it was to round out my corporate experience. And so I learned corporate budgeting. I learned some treasury, I learned some tax. And then I ran a division in finance and I learned how to manage people. The only reason I'm bringing these up is the job entails, all jobs of a seniority position require the ability to manage people. And I can tell you, you don't learn that by books. You learn that by trial and error and you find things that work, work for you directly, your style, your authenticity. And so to get a job early in my career to manage people and then somehow get experience in all the major functions of finance was important. And so that that idea of, you know, deciding you wanted to be a CFO, did that come very early on? Or was that something that you, after you spent a little bit of time in finance, you you loved it, you were passionate about it, and then you realized, okay, I'm, I'm, I'd like to go for the, the top role? Yeah, I had it pretty early on. I, I would say... Probably by my second job, I had the thirst to run something, to do it my way, so to speak. I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because I'd come from a, a blue-collar background. You know, I had this sort of spit in my ear about how to get things done, which I'll come back to and get things done. And then what I would say to all of your folks listening, 
you need to put yourself in position to do well, but you also need some luck. I've been fortunate in having some luck in terms of different roles that I was promoted to or that I you know, ran for and, and was hired to do. You control your destiny in terms of experience you want to get, but what you don't necessarily control is putting yourself always in the right position to get some, have some luck as well. What here as well about the, the way that you've approached things, and this has been a theme with like several guests that we've had on, the relationship between the CFO and the CEO is often such a pivotal one, not just for the CFO themselves, but for the entire company. And one thing that struck me was you, you had this phrase, a wonderful phrase of the CFO can be and, and can act like the consigliere to the CEO. And I wondered what you meant by that and actually what your experiences of acting that consigliere have been like. Well, let me exemplify that. When I was interviewing for the job at Sybase, the CFO, it was the only job I, I ended up getting through a recruiter. And the recruiter, we had, I had a good meeting, and then the recruiter wanted me to go through a whole bunch of interviews. And I said to him very quickly, you know, all these interviews really don't matter if the CEO and I don't get along. So I don't want to go through a bunch of interviews first. I want to meet the CEO. And if the CEO and I get along in, in his chemistry and, and we see eye to eye, so to speak, then let's go through the other interviews, which are important. But frankly, they're only important if, if you and the CEO are aligned. So that just exemplifies that, yes, this is a role that is very close to the CEO. You know, the CEO is it's a lonely role. Many people are, go to the CEO and they will sometimes tell the CEO want, what they want to hear. The CFO has a job to do, which is independent and objective and give just that objective advice. Let me give you another example. I say this in boards. You know, I remember having a discussion on M&A transactions, and I, and I couch boards, and I'm on now a number of boards, as you know. A CFO has to be very careful because if, if you may have a different uh, sort of a clarifying opinion to your CEO in a board meeting, you certainly don't want to just pipe up because that might be perceived as adversarial. Mm-hmm. However, and I suggest this to boards, if you want to get the CFO's opinion, ask the CFO's opinion. And then it is your obligation as a senior member of the team, to give your opinion on whatever subject you're being asked on. So if you're being asked on an M&A transaction to give your opinion as to what you th- see about it, whether it's good, you know, not so good or whatever, you're the one in the CEO's group of, of direct reports that is expected to provide you know, advice and counsel that the CEO can look toward. Let me give you another perspective. People would come to me when I was at Yahoo and say, geez, how do you think Marissa will think about this? How should we present it to Marissa? And they would get my counsel before we saw Marissa. Or Marissa might ask my counsel the same thing. The other thing which is important is sometimes, one or two times, people would try to go around me on a subject that I might have had a difference of opinion and go to Marissa directly. And she was always very good to say, no, let's get everyone in the room together and let's hear everyone out. And then ultimately, Marissa will make the decision but she gave everyone the ability to express their opinions as opposed to doing a one-off with whoever was coming to see her. So I think the ability to you know, ensure you get everyone's opinion, but the CEO will look to the CFO as the person that has really sort of a, a global view of what's going on in the company. And people will come to that person and you can express what you're hearing to the CEO from what, from what you're seeing. Because you're in the bowels of the organization more so than the CEO. 
there's one thesis, which is that the role of the CFO is evolving and has been evolving over perhaps the last decade or so, where it's moved away from what you, what you describe as uh, like a focus on the numbers, because of course it starts off with that core understanding of the numbers, but then actually moves into more of an advisory piece, perhaps directing strategy. And then again, on a topic that that you've touched on in depth, which is about relationships both within the company and externally with investors. So was it always that way or has that role been changing over time? I think it's evolved. I, interestingly enough, because of my background, had a sort of a globalish view of the role and an expansive view of the role. And again, it might be, you know, we're all, you know, we're, we're sort of all a function of our education, our parents and our experiences. That's how we sort of developed. I was fortunate enough that you have good schooling you know, but uh, the rest of it was really from my experiences. And so I did not come from an accounting background. I came more from a business-oriented background. So that's how I see it. There's no question in my mind, accounting is still the bedrock of the financial organization. You need to get it right. You know, you need to have a, a very good rapport with the regulatory agencies, be it the SEC, it could be FINRA, depending upon if you're, you know, working with sort of financial services firm. But I think what I've seen lately, is funny, the, the supply-demand, there's a huge imbalance today for supply-demand of CFOs. And frankly, for all those listening, it is a great role. It is a great role to go into. You see all these companies, you see a lot more companies going public now via traditional IPOs, directed share offerings, more so now through SPACs. So the demand for CFOs is insatiable. The number of CFOs that have requisite experience is not as great. You just saw the Lordstown CFO leave with, with from what I've read anyway, a, a lack of proper disclosure, which is, if you, everyone remembers one thing, just remember disclosure is my friend. You want to always disclose and be transparent. But I would say the accounting function is now more and more being done by very good people in the controllership organization. You need to be on top of it, but the trend going on today and, and for the last few years a number of very good CFOs that come from investment banking. When I graduated from business school, consulting and investment banking with a be-all and end-all, they got the top 5%, top 10%, everyone wanted those highest-paying jobs, greatest you know, experience, all the good things. Today, the best job coming out of business school is, is CFO. You know, Now, you may not get CFO right away, but you see more and more, particularly in technology, particularly internet companies, you see a number of... CFOs coming from investment banking, where they have the broader experience of business. They have a financial acumen, maybe not so much on the accounting. And so they defer that to a team. So you need to make sure they you have a great team. I was initially not supportive of this, but I think what's transpired is the ability to sort of learn those aspects on the job, but to be that consigliere to the CEO. And me, if you know Dave Weiner, he does a phenomenal job at Facebook. Ruth Parat does a phenomenal job at Google Alphabet. Ned Siegel does a phenomenal job at Twitter. These are all former bankers that have now taken on the role of CFO. Anthony Noto is a good friend of mine. He now runs SoFi. He was also a, an analyst and then a banker. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing that trend today. And so then do you think that means going to someone who's uh, either early in their career or maybe even trying to choose their path 
that it would be wise for them mm-hmm. to choose to go down the, the investment banking route and then move into into corporate finance or perhaps start the way that you did, which was go straight into an operating company and then experience different aspects of running a company and work your way to the CFO role that way? I think it depends on who you are and what your passion is. What you don't want to do is try to do something that you're not. I looked at myself and, and you know, to, to do banking correctly, uh, you need to be, a lot of it, I hate to say this, is really salesmanship, getting out and talking to a lot of clients and selling. And, you know, I didn't see that as, as my particular expertise. My particular expertise was numbers. I, I learned how to manage people, but I'm pretty much very analytical. I learned that both in engineering and business school. So I'm an analytical character, so to speak. So I went into, you know, more of my comfort zone was going into a corporation and learning finance and accounting from the ground up. I've always wanted to do everything myself so I could learn it. The good news about my first two jobs is I had the ability to learn accounts payable. I learned collections. I learned tax by being in someone tax, you know, working next to tax and learning a lot of what they did. I learned treasury. So I, I had the opportunity to learn these functions from the ground up. You mentioned, of course, how important and attractive this role is, but weirdly, the supply demand, as you described it, is just not there and there's not the supply of people and talent going for that. Why do you think there is that discrepancy between a fantastic, attractive role, but then just not the right supply of talent going for those types of roles? I think there's two or three things going on. One is people that are even younger than me in my era have decided they don't want to work as hard. And they are finding that they can go on boards. Like I know a lot of folks in their 50s, early 60s that have decided to hang, basically hang it up and just go on boards. They have made you know enough money, so to speak, and they mm-hmm. like the flexibility of the calendar of not having to be there day in, day night, or every night, <laughs> so to speak. So the supply of some of the senior folks, many of whom have done very well, have decided to do a little bit different work-life balance, if you will. The supply is coming now from, as I said before, investment banking, maybe some consulting firms. Mm-hmm. And I think business schools now, a greater, greater percentage of folks in business schools are, are now going into corporate finance as a career as well. It is a demanding role. It's a role that uh, requires a balance of knowledge of the function, chemistry with getting along with people in terms of your peers getting along with the CEO, getting along with the board, which is incredibly important today because of all the what's going on with activists and so forth. And earning the respect, this is actually very important, earning the respect of the team because they will make or break your career. And what I mean by that is the people that I work with up and down the organization, in the engineering departments, you know, in the marketing departments, if they don't like work with you, they will go to the CEO and say, boy, this is not, you know, Ken's not helping me, not working with me. The CEO will look at that very closely to see whether this particular person is the right person. So if you don't have a good rapport, doesn't mean you, have to, you agree with them necessarily and everything, but you need to create a great rapport with the functional teams or the divisional teams in the organization because they will have a major influence as to your ability to succeed with the CEO. The board today looks at the CEO and CFO. Who attends all board meetings? Pretty much the CEO and CFO. Mm -hmm. Now, you won't be in the executive session as CFO, but you will attend probably 90% of the board meeting. You will probably be the only functional leader besides the CEO 
that will attend the entire board meeting. So you you will have a lot of influence there, and the board will be looking at you. And and frankly, I remember a funny story. But when I first started, I was always trying to sort of prove myself. I would always have too many charts and present too long, and I was told to shorten it up, be much more crisp. And so now I'm the one in the board telling the CFO to do that. So you're passing on uh, some advice that yeah. one yes. passed on that I got. Yes, yes. <laughs> So you, you touch on a lot of topics that I'd like to follow up on. And one is, of course, about the relationships and about the need to create rapport and strong relationships, not just with the CEO, which we discussed, but with the entire leadership team and broader team within your company. How did you approach that when you were going into, say, new new organizations where perhaps there were people who'd been there for a longer time and you were coming in probably in part to offer change and transformation and maybe shake things up? How did you get that balance right between being a driver but then building the right level of rapport that's needed? Well, you know, it's interesting. I took a different, a little different approach than Marissa. Marissa pretty much wanted a new team. That's how I got hired when, when she became CEO. She became CEO of Yahoo in July of 2012, and she and I started talking almost immediately. And by the way, every job I've received but one has all come through my referrals. She asked a number of folks uh, for referrals for CFO, and, and many of them gave my name. So that's how I had heard of her, but I did not know her. So that's how I was introduced to her. She, when she went in, wanted to mix it up and adjust many of the roles. She was not getting along at all with the prior CFO. I came in with a little different perspective. I came in with a perspective that everyone in my team is good until they prove me otherwise. Yeah. I came in and, and I worked with all the team. And by the way, I, I, sort of, I think I looked at the numbers. I think I inherited something like 13 folks. It was not as well organized as I, I would like. For example, I'll give you two examples. One is we had very distributed accounting. I wanted to have one choke to uh, hold. And so I put all of global accounting under my corporate controller. And so I had him responsible for all the global accounting across the world. Same thing is I moved accounting, which we had accounting in Europe, in Geneva, which made no sense. And I ultimately moved that to Ireland, where we had a big operation. It was much more cost effective. And we actually had an overpaid person in Geneva, way overpaid. We had in financial planning analysis, division controllers, we had too many people running it. I wanted one person to run my group control, my operating group controller. I wanted one person to run my corporate finance planning analysis. The only person I lost coming in was a head of FP&A, and, and he ended up going to uh, PayPal. I would have liked to have kept him, but he decided to move on. He, he was very close to the former CFO. Otherwise, I kept my entire team. Now, over time, as I said, you know, we had too many people, too many uh, cooks, if you will, doing um, operational planning. And so uh, a couple of those ultimately left. I had a real estate person who I frankly didn't feel had his really uh, hunger in his belly. And he just wasn't working, you know, what I believe hard enough and committed enough. So he and I decided to uh, separate our ways. He's one of the few I did let go. In that case, I hired someone who'd worked for me. And this is important. You know, I've had a lot of good people work for me over the years. And a few of them have worked for me over and over again. One, a corporate controller had worked for me in like four or five of my companies, but it, this, was, this was a role above him, so I didn't hire him. But I hired the, um, someone at, who had worked for me at Siebel to head up my corporate finance in Europe, very, very good. I hired someone to head up real estate who had worked for me 
at Sybase in real estate, very, very good. So I made only a couple, three changes, about three people or four people left that didn't make sense in the organization. But the balance of the team, I kept. And because they are very good, and in my job, frankly, was to support, motivate, retain them, and I did that. So mm-hmm. my point to you is I came in with the idea that my team was good until they proved me otherwise. If they don't want to work with me, that's it's a fair, it's an open world, so that's fine. And I think there's only one or two that we, I didn't really work well with, and so we move on. But for the most part, you know, I kept my team together, and they're and they're very, very good, and they've done well either staying at Yahoo. Well, most of them did not stay at Yahoo. They, they left when uh, the, the company got acquired by Verizon. But I think that's an important point is working with a team that you inherit and giving them a chance to succeed as opposed to assuming they are not up to the task. And, and you will gain a lot of credibility in the organization by demonstrating that commitment to your team. And by the way, I, I believe loyalty. I'm very, very loyal. I defend my, I support my team. We would get into these Donnie Brooks on compensation. We we had a ranking and rating conversation in front of Marissa, in mm-hmm. which we go through our top people on an annual basis. And you know, and I tended to always be the one outlier to give higher raises than other people did. And I would always be challenged. I was too high, and I would end up defending my people because I had a great group and I supported them and defended them. That was one of my jobs was to be extremely supportive of them in terms of their rankings, their ratings, their compensation. That's one of the things that you could always say about me is uh, I was there to be counted on in support of my team. I guess it would take quite a brave and powerful persuasive person to persuade the CFO that they couldn't afford the raises for the finance team. It's funny. It's not one of the areas that people think about in terms of most important organizations. It's one of those functions where... You appreciate it when it's not being done right. Yeah. In other words, it's one of those things where it's done right, it's very seamless, very transparent, sort of like a car. If it's oiled, it runs fine. But all of a sudden, if you don't have the oil correct, you're here cranking or whatever, you don't appreciate the fine tuning of a car until something's not working. You don't appreciate finance until it's not working. And then you find out, boy, this is a pretty damn important function. There's a number of things you can't afford to get wrong. You can't afford to get wrong your regulatory obligations. You can't afford to get wrong your internal controls. You can't afford to get wrong your overview of, of cybersecurity and a lot of the key functions you have to do. You can't afford to get wrong your relationship with your with your external auditors. You think about risk and all the risks you have to focus on. In today's world, rightfully so, a lot of focus on ESG topics, a lot of focus on DEI topics. And you need to get ahead of the game on, on these new topics. Well, I don't know if they're new, but they're certainly reinforced. That challenge that you describe is something that in so many different departments, teams, and parts of organizations will find and feel is that you won't notice how important they are unless they're, as you said, they're not operating well or they're not even there. But you don't want to have to arrive at that conclusion because by the time that you maybe have a finance team or function that's not working well, it's then you need to fix it. It's It can be an existential challenge to certain companies and it can be obviously hugely detrimental. But how do you make the case during the good times for investment in those core areas when maybe people around don't see it as the, the natural place to invest because they just take it for granted? Well, this is where Ross experience counts. Simple things like payroll, it, it's just got to work. You pay your bills, you got to do collections. Cash flow is really important. People 
I see a lot of lazy cash management uh, in companies. I, I reinforce that in all the boards I'm on is how important cash flow management is. I learned that really upfront. Hiring the right people in these roles, that goes a long way to making sure you, you get all these things right. So uh, here's another tool, by the way, showing that you care. How did I demonstrate that? I would have quarterly meetings to go over the reserves and accruals uh, with my team. And so each of them would get up and talk about their particular area, like, you know, what's our bad debt reserve? I always like to see what's in prepaid assets, so make sure I didn't have any hidden assets there that should have been being amortized. What's in my accrued liabilities? What's in my deferred revenue? What is in, in warranty reserve? So it did two things, uh, three things. One is it showed that I cared and I was interested in their area. Two, uh, we made sure we made some decisions as to whether numbers were correct or we needed to double check. And three, it gave these people visibility to me and showed that, that I felt at my role, it was very, very important. And so they gave them visibility, but also demonstrated the importance of the role by mm -hmm. me hosting the meeting. And this is a meeting I've done at every company I've been at, having what I call a quarter reserve and accrual meeting. And it's, we do it before the quarter ends. And it's a way that we were ready for the quarter. So we don't have to make these decisions in real time during quarter close. By closing the books quickly, getting the right software and the right team in place and the right expectations. So you don't take two weeks to close the books. You close the books in within a week, three, four, five days. Not everyone agrees with me. You report the numbers externally as quickly as you can. You get your 10Q or 10K out as quickly as you can. And that way you're, you're doing more work on the future and forecasting and helping the team go forward as opposed to spending all your time looking backwards. Very important function. Perhaps you could talk a little bit more about that because, again, that piece of trying to balance up the the reporting, which is, as you said, backward looking, versus the forecasting and the and the and the planning, which is by by definition is forward looking. How do you balance up those demands? Because often you, you, it's natural for a lot of your time. One, you're under time pressure, so it's not you. you you've got typically a lot to do in far too short a time period. So when that's the case, you focus on what's happened rather than what's to come because it's an easier and an easier question to answer. So how did you get that balance right within your teams? Well, the way I focus it is, again, to get the close process done quickly. And so what you try to do is, is move everything as forward as you can. So mm -hmm. as I said before, to look at your reserves and accruals and not have to have that decision-making during your close process, but get most of that decision-making ahead of the close because you really know what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. some people, you know, close off accounts payable a few days before the quarter ends. Mm -hmm. So you, you do a certain things and, and it's all hands on deck. You know, the only, you should never have people miss getting the close done. I had some comments, uh, I'm not going to make it now because <laughs> I used to have some some comments about you, you never miss close for this or that, but yeah, it may, may not go well with this with this audience. But, you know, you want to have all hands on deck. You're working hard and you, you want to create the culture and expectation in the group that getting closed down quickly demonstrates you have a good team, mm -hmm. demonstrates you have good systems and controls and processes. And so it's a mark of excellence and you take pride in that excellence. And that's mm -hmm. if you instill that pride in that excellence, your team will rise to the occasion. And frankly, a lot of it is expectations. Mm -hmm. If you have expectation to close in two weeks, you're closing two weeks. If you have expectation in one week, you will work to close. And, I, and the companies 
I'm involved in as a board, that's one of the focus items I have, I should say, mm-hmm. is how can we accelerate the, clo- the monthly and quarterly close process so we get it done quicker and we focus on the future. We focus on value-add functions for the finance team. On that closing, what like, and you you mentioned a few timeframes there. What what's the difference, like just from your perspective and your experience, uh, in terms of the the time taken to close? What's the difference between a good and a great company for that time? I think a good company gets to close. You know, and I remember Larry Carter used to work for me at my first company, VLSI Peck. And even back then, I wanted to get the close done quickly. He took it to another level at Cisco. He did a phenomenal job and. He would get it done in three to five days. I I think that's hard. I think there is a point of diminishing returns, like anything where you over, you know, for an extra day, a reduction of a day, you cause your people to work too hard, you know, 24 hours, 12 hours a day or 15 hours. And I think there's a lot of diminishing returns. It's not a problem if they might have to work one weekend during a close. I, I find that okay. And so... I like the idea you get your clothes done the first week, whether that means four days, five days, or the Saturday, that's fine. But I think one week should be adequate to get your clothes done. This leads to one other comment. Figure out the right software today is really important. The external auditors are doing more now in terms of automating their work. And, and, and by the way, that's allowing them to do their audit faster and with more quality controls as well. So the AI tools or the automation tools, robotic process automation, which is a buzzword now being used by a number of companies, those are important elements. We haven't touched on this, but one of the important roles of finance is deciding what administrative systems you want to put in place, which is really, really important. And so having the right systems in place, installing them and ensuring they integrate really effectively is very, very important. So that, that's a big job. I always say... You know, the foundation of finance and accounting is really your team and your systems. So think long and hard of your systems, work very closely with IT in deriving what administrative systems you want to put in place, ensure they work well, ensure they integrate well across the various systems you have. I think there's a balance, but I'm seeing some companies buying every flavor there is and having too many systems. I think there's a balance between having best of breed and, and integrated systems, one shoe for everything. So, you know, I, I would look at a balance there between trying to have, you know, holistic systems, you know, one ERP system, one CRM system, maybe an FP&A system is different. So, I mean, now there's a multitude of expense systems for T&E, for mm-hmm. accounts payable, for FP&A, for automation. There's a whole host of systems. It's the role of the CFO to figure that out with IT and put in place systems that make sense for the company. Systems are clearly very important. And you, you mentioned a whole host of classical software systems, but there are also, there's a, a huge host of innovation that's occurring within the banking system as well. And some of the fintech solutions that are available for companies to use. And so I was wondering which of those categories, which of those areas you thought were that could be the most impactful for the CFO and the finance departments? I would say on the boards I'm on, that has not come up as much of late in terms of those systems. I think it's they're much more used in some of the other industries than in technology. I think that will become more important over time, thinking about fintech, and that may be for those listeners, that may be an area you want to brush up on. I'm not an expert on some of those. I'm not an expert on Bitcoin. 
So there's a number of things that I have not, you know, I read a lot about them, but in terms of the, the applicability within the company, I must admit, I don't have as much acumen there, partly because I have not been in financial services oriented companies. Now, I may see more that I just joined the board of Wealthfront, so I'm going to see a little bit more of how they think about these things as I go forward. But I recently joined that board as well. So that that's something that I will be getting involved in. But that's an area that I think everyone should learn it. But this probably I can't probably give a lot of advice as yet. Yeah. And then, well, thinking back to those other bigger solutions you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. so the FP&A one, the ERP and so forth, when you were making those choices, so again, you've you've gone through some of the responsibilities of the CFO and it's vast. <laughs> it's such a demanding and challenging role. And, and you alluded to that earlier. So when it comes to implementing new systems, that is a, it's a whole new domain. And obviously you need to rely, partner with IT how did you approach, in your experience, whether it was at Yahoo or elsewhere, how did you approach that partnership with IT when you were trying to identify or implement new systems? You tend to spend some time on things you enjoy. Yeah. So I, I happen to like uh, working on systems. I like building. And so when you when you put systems in place, you, you have a sense of accomplishment when you can see them being put in place. So I yeah. sometimes IT has worked for me. Sometimes it's worked separately. It doesn't mm-hmm. really make a difference. But I, I happen to have a, a particular interest because it, to me, it's, it's creative when you can put a new system in place and see the benefits of it. So I, I would recommend all of you, as you listen to this, just think about how important uh, your processes and systems is. The old saying, you don't want to automate a poor process. So think about it, making sure you, you put the right process in place first. And then once you put the right process in place first, then you figure a way to automate it. So I think that's the important point is is think about process controls and automation and spend time, even in my little family office that I'm running now, you know, the IT function is really important. We have a steering committee meeting every other week. We go through what systems we're considering and putting in place. We're looking at how, how we can keep on automating more and more of our manual processes, how to take people out of transaction roles and make them more productive. So I, I think it's one of those areas that for those CFOs, let's call it budding CFOs, one of your real core roles is selecting and implementing and figuring out how to implement and, and having a expertise and excellence in that in implementing systems because it doesn't come easy. Frankly, right now, IT folks are hard to find and you'll be working with consultants and so forth. So I would put a lot of focus on thinking through your architecture of your systems. When I'm on a board, I will always ask for what is the architecture of our current systems? What's our future architecture three, four, five years out? And what's our plan to get there? Yes, that's fascinating. Because I think when you've got that that long-term view, then you can start to not just build the roadmap for technology that you mentioned, but the roadmap for the organization that that technology will support. Correct. I wanted to touch on a couple of other topics. Uh, one that you mentioned that, of course, has, has been, you, may, you mentioned as well, that when it comes to managing relationships, we spoke about internal, but the another critical one are the external relationships, so investor relations. And uh, I'd heard you say before that there is no course in any <coughs> school for that. So you have to learn on the job. Um, but it's hugely impactful and a huge part of your role. And you've been through that as you've taken companies public and in the case of Yahoo, you've had to actually manage uh, relationships with activist investors, which I'd imagine is, is, is extremely intense. What's your view and how has that view evolved on how best to manage 
your relationship with investors as a CFO? Yeah, there's a number of things that come to mind. One is I think you can overplay the time spent. I would always come back with ultimately the the numbers speak for themselves. You know, if you have great numbers, it's just a funny thing. But if you have great numbers, the investors love you. If you have lousy numbers, investors hate you. That's why I say I would focus 90% of my time internally, mm-hmm. operationally, 10% on invest relations, telling my story. You know, I would only do investor meetings, full investor day, only if we had something really special and different to say. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I, I stay the course. We would have expansive earnings calls and Q&A afterwards. We had a, a novel idea at Yahoo because we had our own Yahoo channel and we had a studio. So we actually did, we had Yahoo Finance. So we actually did it on video, which is another opportunity to demonstrate you can do it on video and audio, not just like this one, which is a purely podcast, as you know. And so finding creative ways to do it. But then we would attend most of the key technology conferences, but we would not do a lot more. I know some folks do non-deal roadshows where they get out and speak to investors. I think those are helpful from time to time, but I also think you can overdo that work because, again, you, what you really need to do is you need to make sure you, you have credibility in your forecast. It's the old saying now, everyone wants you to beat and raise. Make sure you beat the, the guidance and raise the guidance. There's some talk uh, about not doing guidance, but I think that's a challenge for technology companies, and we can go into that if you want. But we would provide guidance and to ensure that you have credibility of, of meeting or beating your guidance and being able to raise your forward is really, really important. That shows credibility in your forecasting and, and your operational controls. Very, very important. But, you know, everyone has their style. I tend to be, you know, I want to be very credible. I want to, obviously, I'll answer the questions I can't answer. Some I may not be able to answer because of, it's proprietary information or it's non-public information and you're not in a public setting. So you have to be careful what you can say in, in the different settings. But I, I want to be truthful and honest. What I mean by that is, you know, if things don't go right, accept that, you know, we missed this, we missed that. Uh, we could have done better than that. Glossing over things that didn't go well and just always exemplifying what, you know, the good, you know, you lose some credibility. And so I, I coach some of my companies, you know, be humble, explain where things didn't go as well as we would have liked. Explain things you're working on to improve. Be honest and don't just you know, be positive without giving a balanced scorecard. You spoke about the importance of managing relationships and building rapport internally. But of course, there's the, the idea and the importance of building relationships externally as well with investors. And, and you've taken companies public, had to manage private re- investor relations, and then had activist investors, which I'd imagine are the toughest of the lot that you've tried to manage. And so it was questioning your your approach to mastering that art. Well, I can tell you uh, with activists, there is no perfect playbook. And they're very different. And I'm not going to get into particular ones because I don't think that would be fruitful or helpful. A few things I'd say is, first of all, listen to them. They come with many times very, very good ideas, some of which are not necessarily implementable, but they're good to listen to. Always be respectful. Give them an ear. Listen to them. I think then I would bring on outside advisors. There are a number of banks that have good folks that can help you, including your legal folks, that can help you think through working with them. And can you have a collegial, which is possible with many of these, to to work with them in a collegial way that because ultimately, most of them are all aligned to improve the company financially. 
the challenge is some of them are very short-term focused versus longer-term focused. And that's only, again, you just have to sort of weed that out, the ones that really fundamentally want to help the company versus ones that are looking for a very short-term uptake in the company. But I would say ignore them at your peril. They're not all the same. Working with you, find your your investment bank, or you know you may need a different investment bank that has an advisory group to help you with these folks. More often than not, many of their ideas are very constructive and helpful. Maybe many of them you've already thought about and you're already working on as well, and they just need to be reassured. Unfortunately, there's some others that without even with with all the prodding and whatever, they don't want to listen. And I'm, I'm sort of following the. Um, SAG at, at Box and seeing what's going on there. You know, I've had some very good experiences and frankly, some not so good experiences with activists and it is what it is. And some of my good ones, I've actually invested with their firms because they're more constructive, constructivist activists where they really want to come in and help the company and they want to be longer term holders and they want to work closely with management. And, and so I think sometimes companies can really get the benefit of some outside thinking. And so I won't, I don't want to put a brush, the same brush across all of these activists. And I, I appreciate that because they, they come in very different shapes. There were two topics actually I, I wanted to touch on very briefly. So you've talked about the role of the CFO and, and all of the vast responsibilities, and especially if it's a global organization and a large organization, it becomes even more intense. And you mentioned, of course, that the supply of people willing to do that, perhaps the, uh, they wanted a better work-life balance now that they've, they've got to a certain stage. So you've taken on role after role as a CFO, and, and you mentioned the story about Marissa calling you up when you were in Hawaii to go and interview for Yahoo. So what is it that kept you in the game and, and going back into that role of a CFO versus, of course, maybe doing, you know, going to solely boards. What was it that kept you motivated? The adrenaline of competing. And I, I must admit, even today, and I'm not a spring chicken, I miss that adrenaline. There is nothing that I know if you have that competitive instinct that gives you more excitement than when you have a great quarter, you're doing really well, the stock is doing well, you feel like you're on the top of the world. You don't get that on the board. The board is, is supportive, advisory, all those good things, but you're not the company. You're not the operating people. So what I miss the most is that being in the fray, competing, being part of a team. And, and, and by the way, working in a family office now that I'm doing now for Eric Schmidt gives me the ability to work with a team, which I do like. So I'm getting some of that today. And, and by the way, I, I've, I've always supported... You know, you didn't ask the question, companies going public as soon as they feel they can, because that's the real world. That's where you get capital. That's where you get currency. That's how you compete. The great companies, great management teams do better when they're public than they're private, because great teams like to compete in the real world. The real world is, is public. Bill Gurley has been promoting that for a number of years, a benchmark uh, general partner. So, yes, I do miss that. On the other hand, I do like the ability to do a lot of my avocations. I enjoy kiteboarding now. I'll be doing that in July. I enjoy skiing. You know, I play a little golf. You know, I enjoy, enjoy working out. I enjoy reading. And I enjoy boards. And I enjoy investing. So I have a lot of things going on. And in CFO role, and I, <laughs> I, I was usually challenged because people thought I had too many boards when I was a CFO. And 
I try to juggle a lot of things, and I think I did okay, actually. By the way, I felt my CFO role help my boards, and I felt my boards help my CFO role. So I, I felt it was a virtuous cycle. But nonetheless, the CFO is a full-time role. The Yahoo, I had watched Yahoo from afar. I felt there's a lot of things we could do to improve it. Now, we got a lot of help by the stock of the company called Alibaba, but the stock did go from like a 15 billion market cap to like a 70 billion market cap while I was there. So we did raise the market cap a lot. <clears throat> I was sorry to see a sell to Verizon. I felt it was a mistake. Yeah, you can now see it's a mistake because now Verizon is selling it, the operating business. I knew it was a mistake for Verizon to buy it mm-hmm. and be in the media, media business. You've seen the same thing at AT&T that they're, they're now um, distancing themselves from the media and content as, as well. It's a different space for these folks. So I missed that. It's a great role. I think that's how we started this conversation, Ross. Yeah. And so when Marissa called, I had a point of view on Yahoo that we could improve. We, we did a lot of things in, in terms of improving uh, Yahoo. We, we worked on the products. We worked on the finance. We worked on cash flow. We worked on the culture. We did not have a good culture there, in my opinion, in terms of a can-do innovative culture. We had no mobile strategy, which made no sense in the world. Uh, we had expenses out of line. We hadn't focused on our cash flow and capital allocation, corporate structure. So we worked on a number of things to add value. And frankly, when we ended up leaving, it was running pretty well, but the board felt uh, we should split the operating business with the Alibaba entity and they decided to sell, which is unfortunate because I thought we had a, I thought we were just hitting our stride. But Yes, that's a board decision, not an operating management decision that was made. The last I wanted to ask for those budding CFOs that are listening and that are looking to you for perhaps advice, what advice, and, and I know that you've you've done a lot of this, of course, and, and there there's a whole host of things that you would you would pass on as words of wisdom. What would be the top pieces of advice that you would give to those budding CFOs in today's world? given what we're saying about the, the evolving role and the, the demands on CFOs of today? Well, I think, first of all, have some humility, I think is always important. Uh, authenticity is, is very important. So that's a little bit of, of who you are. I would suggest you develop a track record of accomplishments. Mm-hmm. So you have something to demonstrate that you've done real work and you've gotten things done. You'd be surprised in this world how many people don't get things done? They have to talk a good game, but don't get things done. So be able to demonstrate you've gotten things done. You, you have made a difference in the jobs and roles you've done. Try to get as much relevant experience as you possibly can. That will help get you prepared. Learn how to work with a team and manage people because it's not obvious how to do that and develop a style. And then this is important as well is Every role, but one I think I said on my CFOs, I got through referrals. Every board I've been on, and I've been on something like 40 boards over my career and mm-hmm. been involved with 10 companies, uh, over 10 companies on the board that got public, helped take three companies public. All my roles, other than one, all came through my network. So being able to network, be visible, go to conferences, go to events, network is really important. Mm-hmm. The last couple of things I would say t- is read a lot, learn a lot. You know, be literate. You'd be surprised how much you learn by reading, you know, papers like the Journal, the Barons, or Economist, you know. But being literate, really important. Last thing I would say is is being cognizant 
of these regulatory bodies. I still listen to webinars from PCOB. I still listen to webinars from uh, FASB. Read a lot from the big four in terms of accounting pronouncements and different directions that they're going, the SEC is going. So be involved. Spend a lot of time. Work hard. Set a good example at home and at work. Those are things I would recommend. Sage advice, Ken. And thank you so much for your time today. There's been some fascinating insights over a very long career uh, in, in so many CFO positions. Ken, if any listeners wanted to follow what you're doing now or, or connect with you, where should they go and do that? Two ways. They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also always happy to give my email, kgoldman55, five in the number, mm-hmm. at gmail.com. So kgoldman5 at gmail.com. So yes, feel free to do that. And I know you can find me on LinkedIn and I'm going to add a URL on my LinkedIn to this podcast Mm -hmm. so people can hear it too. I'm going to start doing that. So I think one of the things, by the way, I would give advice to is LinkedIn has become very universal. And so thinking about how you put your bio and have certain buzzwords on your LinkedIn, I've been reading now is really, really important. So in terms of getting a role, think about your objectives and think about almost having a resume on your LinkedIn and, and think of having some of your accomplishments, awards, podcasts, other things that you've done. Think about your LinkedIn is, is embodying who you are. It's probably the number one way for people to find out about you know your background, your profile, and your and some of your interests as as a professional at least. I would say if I had to do what I didn't do as well now, spend more time with your family. Uh, I probably too much put focus on working to the detriment of I mean I remember the difference between when we had my wife and I had kids versus my daughter who just had her first child and, mm-hmm. and, and seeing what her husband does versus me going back to work the next day. It's a different world today and feel free to take time off. It's healthy to get your vacation. You don't gain any brownie points by not taking some, some time off. I think that's words of advice in terms of you know having a decent balance. I do work out every day. I think being physically fit mentally fit go hand in hand. So I, I work out literally every day between aerobics or weights. As someone said, YOLO, you only live once. I have FOMO as well, but uh, YOLO is probably a more accurate in today's world. So uh, I, I would just think about that as we go forward. Very good advice, Ken. The last word I'll say is the importance of staying relevant. One of the reasons why I continue to do what I do, including being president now of family office, being on a number of boards, active investing is the ability to stay relevant in my various circles that I feel important. Staying relevant, staying engaged, being in the game, because as soon as you get out of the game, it can be, very, it can be boring and, and people very quickly forget who you were. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand that. So Ken, it was a pleasure to talk. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for reaching out. Take care, Ross. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone you know. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo, the leading smart company card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com.